Yeah. We come today to the continued study of our purpose statement. And to remind you of the content of that tremendous statement, let me read it to you. The purpose statement of the Master's College. And this really says it all. The Master's College exists to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping men and women for excellence in service to Him in strategic areas of ministry and vocation through unreserved commitment to worshiping God, submitting to the authority of the scriptures, nurturing personal holiness, serving in the local church, and penetrating the world with the truth. There are 59 words in that purpose statement, and out of all of those 59 words, I have been given the tremendous phrase, in service. That is what we will be talking about today. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. And in a sense, when you come to the phrase, in service, we have reached a high point, a pinnacle in that purpose statement. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21 and read down through verse 24. And in honor of the Word of God, would you stand with me, please? Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21 and reading down through verse 24. There were times when the Apostle Paul became very, very transparent. He lets you see inside his heart. This is one of those times. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. We have a man at civil war with himself, two desires pulling him in completely opposite directions. On the one hand, he wanted to die and depart from this planet and be with Christ, but on the other hand, he said, if I am to remain on in the flesh, it is beneficial for you. Let's pray together and we'll talk about in service. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening the Word of God this morning. And we pray that as we come to it now, you will speak in a very powerful way to our hearts and our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There is a ring in this microphone, gentlemen. If you could take care of that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. I can relate very clearly to the words of the Apostle Paul because I have felt that tension before in my own heart. Maybe you have as well. Every morning of my life, this will sound incredibly masochistic to you, but every morning in my life, I expose myself to incredible torture. I dare to read the morning newspaper. That is not a good way to begin the day. Frankly, there is nothing about this planet that holds me here. I have no desire to live here any longer than I have to. This place is a cesspool. I opened the paper this morning. I read the front page story about Listeria Hysteria. Have you heard about that? People who have purchased illegally made cheese and a bacterial substance in that cheese causing death and they're trying to get a control of this thing and the disease has come to be called Listeria. And so on the front page of today's Daily News there was a front page article about the fact that people are dying from that. Then I read about mandatory drug testing. 
because so many government officials are coming to work stoned out of their mind that there is a battle raging in the courts today about mandatory drug testing in the offices of the leaders of our land. Then I turned to page three and I read about Soviet relations and U.S. relations completely breaking down over the Danilov affair. One of our correspondents, U.S. News and World Report, who was kidnapped and charged with spying. Then I read about this. Metal detectors placed on high school campuses because last week, 30 minutes from here, in Fairfax High School, there was a fatal shooting. And the school board is wrestling with the possibility, like in an airport, of putting metal detectors in the corridors of high school campuses. What is this world coming to? And then, shocker of shocks, are you ready for this? Did you know that last night at Disneyland, a man was arrested and jailed for sexually assaulting Minnie Mouse? That's true. That's true. You know how they run around in their little costumes? And this guy tried to rape Minnie Mouse. And then horror of horrors, the Raiders are 0-2. I mean, what is this world coming to, right? Now there is nothing that holds me here. Nothing. I don't want to raise a family here. I've got a five-year-old little son, cutest guy in the world, and I've got to protect him from the kind of a society in which he is growing up. And heaven only knows what it will be like when he's high school age or your age or my age. There is nothing that holds me here. And I relate completely with what the Apostle Paul said. I am torn in two directions. I wish Christ would blow the trumpet and take me out of here. Don't you? I don't understand people who have a kind of a seeming attraction to this world system. I don't understand it. But then on the other hand, I realize that I am here for one reason. And that is that you need me, the society needs me, the world needs my influence. The world needs your influence. So my commitment is this, okay, you can keep me here as long as you want, God, and you can use my influence for your glory as long as you want, but when you're through, do not hesitate, take me out of here immediately. I exist on this planet for one purpose and one purpose only you exist on this planet for one purpose and one purpose only and that purpose is to exert through your life a godly influence period that's it beyond that there is no reason for us to be here we exist for one reason to exert a godly influence I call that to bring it down to one word Service. Service. When I serve Jesus Christ, I am allowing my life to exert an influence of godliness in our society in whatever dimension of society I am operating. That could be at this school, that could be on the job, that could be out in, the, in, a, in a ball game someplace, it could be in a supermarket, it could be in my neighborhood, it could be wherever I am. In terms of the people God brings into my life, I have one basic purpose and that is to exert a godly influence. And that is what the Master's College is all about. We are committed to equipping you so that you can begin to exert on our society a godly influence. That's it. We are not here to equip you to make a better living. That isn't even an issue. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 says, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Seek to live a holy life and to extend His kingdom, that's a godly influence, and God says, I will take care of all of your needs. 
So, your living, your career is not the issue. We are not here just to help you pursue some career goal. It says in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, The goal of my life is to be all that Jesus Christ wants me to be. So it isn't to earn a living. It isn't to pursue a career goal. You're not here just to experience the good life. We don't want to give you an education so that you can leave here and establish for yourself the good life, comfortable living. In case you have missed it, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul used three metaphors to describe what you and I are involved in. He said that you and I are soldiers engaged in a war. There's no comfort in a war zone. Paul said that you and I are athletes competing in athletic games. There is no comfort for an athlete. It is strict discipline. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you are a hard-working farmer. There is no comfort for a hard-working farmer. Up before dawn, in bed after sunset, expending all of his energy in total commitment to one goal, raising his crop. The good life is not the issue. I don't even relate to it in a Christian context. This is warfare. This is athletic competition. This is hard-working farming. So our purpose here is not to help you to experience the good life. Did it ever dawn on you that the very identity of a Christian, the very identity of a Christian is that of a servant? Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He identified himself as a bond slave. The word bond slave is a person who voluntarily submits his will to the will of another. And in describing himself, the Apostle Paul called himself a bond slave. A person who has willingly submitted his will to the will of another. He uses that same phrase in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called himself in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, an apostle by the will of God, submitted to the will of God. He called himself that same thing in 2 Corinthians 1.1, Ephesians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, and 2 Timothy 1.1. An apostle by the will of God. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul called himself an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he called himself an apostle according to the commandment of God our Savior. The point is obvious. To say that you have committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then to live your life without serving Him is a contradiction. To say that you have committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then live your life without serving Him is to live a contradiction. Your very identity is that of a servant of Jesus Christ. Lordship demands obedience. Kingship demands service. May I be so bold as to put it this way. To say that you are not serving is to say that you are sinning. Did it ever dawn on you that the greatest privilege of a Christian is service? It is not only our identity, it is the greatest privilege we know. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
Paul laid out the standard for being used as a servant by God. There is a very strict standard. Not every one of us will be accepted. Not every one of us is usable. There is a strict standard. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. You could slice this student body in half. Some of us are vessels for honor. Some of us are vessels for dishonor. Not usable. Which are you? Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. That means set apart by God for a special purpose. Sanctified. Useful to the master. Prepared for every good work. Now flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and a pure heart. The standard to be used by God, a fleeing of youthful desire, lust, and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace, and a pure heart. Those are the people God uses. Not all of us qualify. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. And did it ever dawn on you that the crowning moment in the life of a Christian will be when he is rewarded by God as a servant? It is not only our identity, and it isn't just our greatest privilege, but the crowning moment that comes into our lives is when we stand before Christ and He rewards us as His servants. And the songs we sung today were so appropriately chosen. Faithful men, that is what I want to be. Hearing God say to us, well done, that is what I want to hear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, He, referring to God's servants who serve faithfully, He shall receive a reward. I long for that. Don't you? It says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, As we stand before Christ and our works are evaluated, those of us who are found faithful will hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful, what? Servants. Servants. That is the passion that burns in my heart to hear him say of me, Well done, my good and faithful servant. It is just too easy for you to sit in a Sunday school class, becoming fat and sassy, and sitting in a Bible study. I am literally haunted every moment of my life by two words. So, what? When my life ends, they put me in the grave and they affix an epitaph on my tombstone. I don't want it to say, so what? He was born, he lived, he died, so what? I'm haunted by that. Aren't you? I don't want to waste a life. I want to invest one. It is that which makes life thrilling. It is that which makes life invigorating and it is that which makes life stimulating and if you're not in on it, you are missing it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What does a good and faithful servant look like? What characterizes good and faithful service? Would be good for us to explore that and the best example I could find is back in the Old Testament a man by the name of Nehemiah. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1.
and let's explore it. What is a good and faithful servant? What does he look like? What characterizes his life? And then, what characterizes good and faithful service? If I'm to hear the words one day, well done, what do I have to look like? What do I have to do? If he is looking for reapers who are faithful men, what does a faithful man look like? What does a faithful reaper do? Let me set this scene historically, all right? The Jews were taken captive by Babylon and were held in captivity for 70 years. When the 70 year captivity ended, there was a restored Jewish remnant who made it back into the land. As you open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1, the Jewish remnant had been back in the land for approximately 90 years. During those 90 years, under the able leadership of Zerubbabel, the temple had been rebuilt. Not as glorious as the first temple, but nevertheless, a temple had been rebuilt. Under the leadership of Ezra, worship had been restored in the land. But two gargantuan projects remained. First of all, the project involving the walls. The walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. And then secondly, the people had to be reinstructed. They had not been taught the word of the Lord and they had to be reinstructed. So if you consider the trilogy of books that ends the Old Testament historical section, that trilogy of books being Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you can summarize those three books in this way. Ezra records the restoration of a nation, Nehemiah records the reconstruction within the nation, and Esther records God's supernatural preservation of the nation. And then historically, the Old Testament ends. When you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to the king in Babylon. And he got an eyewitness report. And the report was not a good one. Let me read it to you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, here's the report. The remnant there is in the province who has survived the captivity and they are in great distress. They are in reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. What is the big deal about a wall? Just some brick and mortar, who cares? In that culture, a wall around a city meant everything. Without a wall, the people of God were laid open, bare, to attack and plunder by vicious neighbors and discouragement had almost reached the point of despair. For that reason, Nehemiah responded in verse 4, It came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. What characterizes a good and faithful servant? Let me list them for you. We don't have a lot of time to discuss them, so let me just give them to you. Ready? Get ready to write. We're going fast. What characterizes a good and faithful servant? Number one, he has to have a burning passion. He has to have a burning passion. A goal that has absolutely captivated him, a goal given to him by God. A man who dreams a dream and sees a vision. Nehemiah was a man after he heard that message who was ignited to a flame. A burning fire within his heart was fanned out of control because he realized that the people of God were a mockery to the enemy nations because the wall had been destroyed. A burning passion. 
Jesus had it. Obvious. John chapter 2. Walked into the temple. They had turned the thing into a carnival. They had made it into a swap meet. And he took cords and he made a whip. And um, infuriated at the desecration of God's house, chased the people out. The disciples remembered that it was quoted of him in the Old Testament. Zeal for thine house has eaten me up. Zeal. A combination of two explosive forces. Zeal, a combination of a love for God and a hatred for anything that robs him of glory. And when love and hate come together, it is explosive in its force. A man with a passion. It was, it was the Apostle Paul when he walked into the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. When he saw an entire city given over to idolatry and the Bible says that his heart was stirred within him. What stirs your heart? was a man by the name of Henry Martin who wanted to be a missionary in India and after overcoming many obstacles as his boat finally landed on the shores of India he fell out of the boat knelt down weeping on the sand and heard these words were heard out of his mouth now God let me burn out for you it was a man by the name of Sam Hadley a former alcoholic came to Christ and was delivered walking the streets of New York City one day and when nightfall came and he saw the streets of the city explode into life, he leaned up against a lamppost and he groaned from the depths of his spirit, Lord, the sin of this city is breaking my heart. Have you ever felt that? A number of us were in New York City this past summer. And I remember one night our president, Dr. MacArthur and Tom Maharis, our pastor back in Manhattan and I were driving through the streets at two in the morning and I asked Tom to drive us among the tenement buildings and so at 2 a.m. we parked the car on the corner it looked like a movie set tenement buildings all around us and the streets were alive with teenagers literally hundreds of teenagers it looked like an anthill crawling with life and we walked the streets and we witnessed to some of the young people there. We had the privilege of leading two very, very precious teenage girls to Christ. And after they prayed to receive Christ, they took us door to door and showed us where we could obtain any drug we wanted. Those two girls had never been out of those streets. And apart from the Spirit of God, have no hope of ever getting out of it. When you hear about the concrete jungle, that's exactly what it is. And I can remember the three of us leaned up against some lampposts and we cried out, Lord, the sin of this city is breaking our hearts. But you don't have to fly to New York City, Manhattan, to experience that. The Santa Clarita Valley is just as pagan. And I can say to you that the sin of the Santa Clarita Valley is breaking my heart. When you have a passion, no one can put a lid on it. You will fulfill that passion no matter what the obstacle or what the price. I could not live with myself and look myself in the mirror every day of my life knowing that I was pastoring a high school group down in the San Fernando Valley, but every day of my life driving past Canyon High School and not doing a thing to reach that campus. So God has allowed me in the deepest desire of my heart to begin to mobilize a team of precious students from here who have an equal burning passion with my own to help me fulfill the desire that God has given me and dare to take a risk and touch heart Saugus and Canyon High School for his glory. It's John Knox who cried out, God give me Scotland or else I will die. What's your passion? What makes you weep and mourn for days? 
It begins there. There is no faithful service without a burning passion. Because without the passion, it becomes very mechanical. Nehemiah was a man whose heart exploded into flame. A passion that burned for God's people and God's reputation. Number two. Nehemiah, and I hesitate to say this because it has almost become a cliche and therefore it is devoid of meaning. So I'll need to define it. But this is absolutely essential. It is a prerequisite to good and faithful service. Nehemiah was a man of God. He was a man of God. What does a man of God look like? You have heard that phrase. You desire to be a man or a woman of God. How does that translate into practical daily living? It's obvious. Number one, Nehemiah was a man who knew God. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Nehemiah prayed and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive. He knew God. He called him Lord. That is the sovereignty of God. He called him the God of heaven. That is the supremacy of God. He referred to him as a great God. That is the infinite quality of his attributes. He referred to him as an awesome God. That is the overwhelming power of God that he couldn't even comprehend. He referred to him as the God who preserves the covenant. That is his faithfulness. He referred to him as a God of loving kindness. That is his love. He referred to him as a God who will reward those who keep his commandments. That is God's justice. And he referred to God as one who is attentive to the prayers of his servants. And that is a God who is personal. He knew God. And in the opening sentence of his prayer, he defined God in totality. He knew him intimately. What is a man of God? A man of God is a prayer warrior. He wins and loses battles on his knees. Chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, Thy servant is praying before thee day and night. Thy servant is praying before thee day and night. A faithful and a good servant is a man who wins the battle on his knees. Interesting, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 6, you don't need to turn to it, but just briefly, in Ephesians chapter 6, where the armor of God is laid out piece by piece in the context of incredible warfare, at the end of the presentation of every piece of armor, Paul brings the whole thing together in verse 18 and says this, Now that you have all your armor on, you are able to defend yourself, you are protected, now take the advance. Go on the offensive. And the offensive, verse 18, is this, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Be on the alert with all perseverance. Be on the alert with all petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf. Prayer is our offensive weapon and a man of God knows that. Thirdly, a man of God is one who is aware of and continually confesses his sin. A man of God is someone who is aware of and continually confesses his sin. Chapter 1, verse 7. We, notice the pronoun, we. We have acted very corruptly. We have not kept your commandments. There was a brokenness over the sin in his life. What is a man of God? A man is a, of God is one who knows the Word of God. He knows the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 8. Remember the Word which you did command, and then he quoted Moses. He knew the Word of God. What is a man of God? A man of God is one who walks in the fear of God. Chapter 1, verse 11. It says this. Be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. A fear of God, an awesome respect for the person of God. What is a good and faithful servant? A good and faithful servant is a man who has a burning passion. 
A good and faithful servant is a man or a woman of God. Thirdly, Nehemiah was a man who was obedient to those God had placed in authority in his life. The man who lived under authority. Chapter 2, verse 5. And I said to the king, If it please the king, notice the respect, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah. He made an appeal to his authority. He was a man who lived in obedience to those God had placed in authority over him. If you are, on this campus, a rebel, you have disqualified yourself. Pure and simple. God will not use a rebel. God will use a man who is obedient to those whom God has placed in authority over him. Number four. This gets incredibly practical. Nehemiah was a conscientious worker. He was a good worker. So good that when the king granted him permission to leave, the king wanted to know exactly when he would return. Hated to see him go. Realized he was losing a valuable worker. Chapter 2, verse 6. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. He was a valuable worker. Very practical. You should be the best employee your boss has. When I was a student here, I worked my way through this college at a buck sixty-five an hour. That was minimum wage back then. And I worked as a stock clerk at a stationery store. And I remember one of my jobs was to sweep the floors, and my superintendent would go along the floors on occasion, spot-checking my job with a white glove. And he would rub his hand across the floor, and if there was dirt, then I would hear about it. It was essential for me to maintain any kind of a credible witness on the job to make sure when he wiped that glove across the floor, no dirt. And my commitment was basic. If at this point in my life my job is to sweep floors, my floors are going to be the cleanest floors in the city. A good and a faithful servant approaches his job that way. I will be the best employee that person has ever had. Number five. Good and faithful servant is a person who has a plan to go along with his passion. The ability to set and pursue clearly defined goals. He isn't just a man wound up and on fire who mows his way through a city. He has a plan. He has thought through the issues. And Nehemiah was that way. Chapter 2, verse 7. I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces. He knew exactly what he needed, from whom he was going to get the supplies and the wood in order to build the walls. He had a plan. Clearly defined goals. Number six. Self-sacrificing discipline. Discipline. A good and a faithful servant is disciplined. Chapter 2. Verse 12, I arose in the night while other people were sleeping. He was planning, sacrificed his own personal comfort in the pursuit of the goal that God had given him. One writer said this, see this man of prayer and faith going around those broken walls while darkness reigns over the scene and other men are asleep. It is a sight which stirs our spiritual sensibilities and provokes heart-searching thought. 
Whenever a true work of God is about to begin, some faithful, prayer-burdened servant of God has to take a journey like Nehemiah to weep in the night over the ruins or to wrestle in some dark Gethsemane. And it is always such men as Nehemiah who become the inspirers and encouragers of others, undauntedly overcoming satanic opposition and the idle jibes of worldly scoffers. That was Nehemiah. Self-sacrificing discipline. Denying personal comfort in the pursuit of his higher calling. What is a good and faithful servant? Number seven. He has a healthy balance between divine unction and human action. A healthy balance between divine unction and human action. Chapter 4, verse 9. When the workers were under attack, here is what he did. We prayed to our God because of them, the enemies. We set up a guard against them by day and night. Prayed to God for victory, set a guard for protection. Practical and spiritual coming together. He wasn't merely a man who sat down and prayed that God would build a wall. He understood the balance between the need to pray and the need to work. He understood that if this project is to be completed, God must bless our efforts. But if the project is to be completed, it requires from me hard work. And so he worked. He didn't just pray for an A on the exam. He studied his head off. He understood the balance. Number eight, a good and faithful servant has clear-cut convictions, non-negotiables, that he refuses to compromise, regardless of the cost. Chapter five, he found out that the people had sold themselves into slavery. Jews were holding other Jews in slavery. Nehemiah said, that is wrong. And when he found out about it, verse six, then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He was a man of clear-cut biblical convictions. Refusing to bend, refusing to compromise no matter what the cost. Number nine. A good and faithful servant is a man who endures in the midst of obstacles and overwhelming opposition. He is a man who endures in the midst of obstacles and overwhelming opposition. Chapter 6, verse 3, when he was verbally attacked by his critics, and every good and faithful servant has his critics. I have no respect for a man or woman who has no critics. And when he was attacked and distracted, he said this, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should I stop the work I am doing? No matter what the obstacle, he continued to build. And then finally, number 10. Number 10. A good and faithful servant is a man upon whose life God has placed his hand. And is it any wonder? Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Nehemiah said, the good hand of my God was upon me. 
That is both a sovereign act and a responsive act on the part of God. God sovereignly puts His hand on whomever He chooses, but it is a responsive act in that God will only put His hand on a man, a woman, who has a burning passion, a man or a woman of God, a man or a woman under authority, a man or a woman who is a good worker, a man or a woman who has a plan to go along with His passion, a man or a woman of discipline, a man or a woman who is practical in terms of hard work in the pursuit of His goal, a man or a woman of clear-cut biblical conviction, and a man or a woman of endurance in the midst of obstacles on that man on that woman God will put his hand that is a good and faithful servant what is good and faithful service my time is about gone let's go through it quick you ready there are some incredibly practical principles that come out of Nehemiah regarding you and your future employment listen carefully we're talking now about your job or career whatever it is for which you are planning what is good and faithful service we are here to equip you to be effective in service to him what does it look like number one it is essential that you view your career not as merely a job but a platform from which you exert a godly influence your career is to be a platform from which you exert on the world a godly influence when he was cupbearer to the king he used that secular job to exert a godly influence over the king his hand was on the jeweled chalice but his heart was on the people purposes and plans of God and he used a secular job as a servant to the king as a platform to exert a godly influence when he built a wall you wouldn't think of a wall as a spiritual project it's brick it's mortar it's dust it's debris it's just a wall secular job a builder but he used it to exert a godly influence a servant will always attach spiritual significance to the most secular of pursuits let me put it this way and I know I'm giving you a lot of material in rapid-fire succession this ought to be a series so don't miss this you listening whatever career goal you have set for yourself if you cannot visualize your chosen profession as your pulpit then your chosen profession is out of the will of God if you have set a career goal for any other reason than the fact that you have visualized how that career can be a platform from which you exert a godly influence then that job that career is out of the will of God the purpose of your job is not just to make a living it is not just to give you the fulfillment of achieving a career goal and it is not to provide you with the good life the purpose of your job is to exert a godly influence and if you can't visualize how you can do that through your job then your job is out of the will of God and if you pursue that job it will never ever be fulfilling to you number two often God will raise his choicest servants to a position of number two 
Often, God will raise his choicest servants to a position of number two. He did not make Nehemiah king. He made Nehemiah cupbearer to the king. He made Nehemiah influential, influential to the king. In other words, in the service of God, there is no room for power-hungry people. In the service of God, there is no room for power-hungry people. Your goal should never be to work your way up to being number, number one in the corporate structure because of the power it will give you. Your goal should be in whatever echelon you are operating to serve as an influence and allow God to elevate you to whatever position he wants you to have. There is no room for ego. There is no room for a power struggle among the servants of the king. Number three, God's call in your life will always be directly related to the burning passion in your heart. God's call in your life will always be directly related to the burning passion in your heart. Chapter 1, verse 4, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And in chapter 2 and verse 5, when he stood before the king, he said, If it is pleasing to you, king, allow me to return to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild the wall. He had a passion and God's call in his life was directly related to that passion. A couple of more and we're done. Number four. There may well be a time gap between the birth of a vision and God allowing you to fulfill that vision. There may well be a time gap between the birth of your vision and God allowing you to fulfill that vision. And that time gap is called preparation. From the time Nehemiah heard the report to the time he left for Jerusalem, there was a four-month gap. Four months. For some of you, that gap is four years. And during the four years, you have a burning desire to serve God in some well-defined way, but you can't do it because you are a student here and will be for the next four years. That time gap is meant for your preparation. God never will use a man or a woman without first preparing him. And during that four-month period of time, God prepared the heart of Nehemiah, and he prepared the heart of the people who served under Nehemiah, and he prepared the heart of the king. So there may be a gap in time. Number five. God will always elevate his servants on the basis of this principle. If you are faithful in little, then God will put you over greater responsibility. God will always elevate his servants on the basis of this principle. If you are faithful in the little things, God will elevate you to a greater place of responsibility. That's Matthew chapter 25 and verse 23. Nehemiah was faithful as a cupbearer, so God elevated him to the position of wall builder. He was faithful as a wall builder, so God elevated him to the place of governor. The position to which God will elevate you in the future is directly determined by how faithful you are as a student here. God only elevates faithful people. And if you're not faithful over the little, you will not be faithful over the greater. Two more. Number six. There will always be intense and continuous opposition to the purposes and plans of God. 
there will always be intense and continuous opposition to the purposes and plans of God. No plan of God, no purpose of God will ever be fulfilled without incredibly intense opposition. Nehemiah experienced it from within and he experienced it from without. From within, his own staff, his own team of people experienced fear and greed and discouragement. And the enemy from without ridiculed and used force and tried to distract in every way that they could. There will always be intense and continuous opposition. Mark it well, will you? This is war. We are soldiers in a war. And if that mindset does not permeate you, then you're setting yourself up for incredible disillusionment. This is hand-to-hand -hand intensive combat. And every step of the way, the enemy will block the plan and purpose of God. Number seven. The goal to which you give your life. The goal to which you give your life must be something so utterly impossible that if God is not in it, it is doomed to fail. The goal to which you give your life must be something so utterly impossible that if God is not in it, it's doomed to fail. Dare to take a risk. Dream a big dream. Set a big goal. When the wall was completed in Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah wrote this. So the wall was completed, and it came about, when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The enemies lost their confidence because when they looked at the wall, they realized that this had been accomplished with the help of our God. When my life is over and the, event, the investment of my life is evaluated, my desire is that those who hate Jesus Christ will look at my life and see a living testimony to the existence of God because they will have to conclude that what was accomplished through his life had to be with the help of his God. Dream a dream, see a vision so utterly impossible that if God is not in it, it is doomed to fail. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1 and let's bring it to an end. Philippians chapter 1, Paul opens himself up and lets us see inside. He is incredibly transparent. Paul said this, Christ is everything to me. You take him away, you take my life away. And I'm torn between a constant struggle of two opposing forces within my heart. I want to leave this cesspool and go to be with him. But I know if I remain, it will be beneficial for you. I hope that's the heartbeat of your own life. 
I long for Jesus Christ to take me out of here. But as long as I am here, I will do all I can to exert a godly influence on a cesspool society that desperately needs me. The Master's College exists to equip students for excellence in service to Him. Let's bow together in prayer.